0: A, uh, strange and difficult uh, 17 months uh, let alone the last couple weeks here first Baptist would and uh, you know we are uh, our plans have been uh, to move toward going back to one service one primary Sunday school hour with some other uh, growth groups at various times for those who who desire those and where we have opportunity and our, the goal has been to do that the first week of September uh, in fact Early in the summer, I felt like that we were at a place with the pandemic that we could do that already, and uh, we just felt like we wanted to give some of our folks that were struggling, easing back into coming together in large groups, more opportunity to come to our first service. You may note some hesitancy in my voice, uh, because there is some hesitancy in my voice. Our, our plan and our goal is still to uh, come back together to one service on September the 5th, but you've seen the news And I have two. We see the arguments that are taking place over school coming back together. Uh, We see the rise in COVID cases. We've had our own experience with COVID here from youth camp. Uh, We have uh, one church member that is a parent of one of those campers who is in the hospital right now uh, dealing with uh, the after effects or the continuing uh, sickness from COVID after he's had it two weeks. Um, And so I would encourage you to, uh, to continue to pray uh, pray for the Lord to give us wisdom. Uh, there are some changes that will be coming in the growth groups. Anyway, the material is going to be different. But pray for God to give us wisdom about how to approach our services and all of those things. Right now, I just have a. There's just this darkness uh, that is kind of hanging over us, and and, uh, and and confusion and and difficulty, and and then you come down to just what we've dealt with the last couple of weeks. I'll tell you a story. Uh, Tuesday afternoon. Uh, Nathan, who uh, you know, he's our uh, young new youth minister. Teaching him how to be associate pastor, the Lord had had a pastoral uh, situation that I was kind of dealing with for the the previous couple days, and and I just sat him down, and I knew it's time to bring him into it, and I said, well, let me let me show you this text. And let me I want you to read it, and then I want us to talk about it. And so he reads it, and he he puts his head down in his hands, and he shakes his head, and you can just see the the weight of. Of concern and, and, and a shepherd's heart in Nathan as he as he does that and he looks up at me and he says, "It has been a week." I said, "Nathan, it's Tuesday." <laughs> <sighs> there's weeks like that. There's days like that. It, there's been a year like that where it just seems that that we are going through some some darkness and some difficult times, and the the truth is that's, that's part of life. It's just it. We're going to go through times like that. We're going to be looking at a passage, John chapter 19, verses 31 through 42, that I, I've titled what, what We Learn from the Darkest Day. I, I have never preached from these two paragraphs, okay? John, however, Took great pains, and we'll see that as we walk through this text to highlight some things clearly that from his perspective, as, as John the apostle, wrote his gospel, he wanted us to see. But it's so it, it's it's a lot easier for us to preach on the cross and then move to the resurrection. But what we're gonna be looking at today is this dark day when Jesus was just in the grave, he was dead. And, and I felt the Lord leading me there a long time ago, but I want you to see an irony that we're going to deal with here, and, and, and let's look at it this way. Jesus is God. John wants us to understand that. John begins his gospel not with the lineage or the genealogy of Jesus from Adam, or, or the the birth narratives of Christ, as Matthew and Luke do. John begins his gospel with these words: "In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God." John is going to emphasize for us that Jesus is God, and he tells us he's doing that, and he's going to tell us these particular stories that he laid out that he has perpo- personally witnessed. He wants us to hear these stories so that we will know that Jesus is the Son of God and believe that he is the Son of of God, and that in Christ we can have life. So John is very purposeful about the stories and the words that he chose not to just tell the narrative of Jesus' life, but to, to aim us and to point us a particular direction. This Jesus is God. The same Jesus who is God, Paul, uses these words to define in Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, and visible and the invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him, and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. This is Jesus that Paul's talking about. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Creator. He is God. And yet in today's text, what we're going to note is that that same Jesus allowed his body to be completely stripped naked. To be beaten, to have the flesh ripped from it, thorns placed on his head, and his body, that that, container that was fully God on this earth, to be put in the hands of two religious leaders and carried to a final resting place. Because in a very real way, Jesus, as we come to know the second person in the Trinity, was dead. It was a dark day. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Bartholomew, Nathaniel, Mary and Mary, who stood at a distance, had seen the one whom they believed was God The Resurrector, the one who had recently raised Lazarus from the dead, is dead. Healer? Who's going to heal the healer when the healer is dead? Who's going to give sight to the blind when he's dead? Who's going to give life to the author of life who is dead? Jesus was dead. Make no mistake about it. John makes that point. Now, we can get into theological backgrounds about the spirit and the body, but Jesus who had come to earth, born in the womb of a virgin and had walked among us, the second person of the Trinity, cried out, it is finished on that cross. This was a dark day. Why did John spend so much time talking about the burial? Why did he spend this many words, half of a, of a chapter, talking about the burial of Jesus? I believe it's because there's something that he has for us to learn from it. And so I want us to, to look at it from this perspective. What is there that we can learn from the darkest day? Now, I'll tell you up front that this is, I, I believe that this is important because in my life, I've learned a whole lot more from the dark days than I have from the light days You hear me share a whole lot more illustrations from those days when when we suffered, when Katie was dying, or when Katie was struggling, or we were getting bad news, because it's in the dark times that we meet God, that we learn. So what is it that we can learn? What does John want us to learn from these dark days? Read the text with me, John 19, 31. The Scripture says, since it was the preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath. For that Sabbath was a special day, that Sabbath in particular. They requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken and that their bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other men who had been crucified with him. And when they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once blood and water came out. He who saw this has testified, so that you may also may believe. His testimony is true, and he knows he is telling the truth. For these things happened so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones was broken. Also, another Scripture says that they would look at the one they had pierced. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might remove Jesus' body. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took his body away. Nicodemus, who had previously come to him at night, also came bringing a mixture of about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. They took Jesus' body and wrapped it in linen cloths with the fragrant spices according to the burial custom of the Jews." There was a garden in the place where he was crucified. A new tomb was in the garden. No one had yet been placed in it. They placed Jesus there because of the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby. Here in this extended two paragraphs, there seems to be nothing but darkness. But I want to begin because John puts a lot of focus on this first part about Jesus' legs not being broken, the other guys being broken, and what was going on around the Sabbath. and So I want to talk about that for just a little bit because I think one of the most important lessons that we can learn here is, is the difference between what it means to be religious and what it means to be focused on the things of Christ. And what we see here is religion places symbolism over substance, okay? There's, a, there's an incredible irony here that, that we'll see flesh itself out but, but the irony, in fact, there's a. Uh, this came from one of the commentaries that I was reading uh, that triggered this for me. The Jews think that the corpse of the Son of God is their source of defilement at the Passover. They're not going to leave Jesus' body on the cross because just him hanging out there on the gates of Jerusalem is some source of defilement for the Passover. And they can't leave his body there. When in reality, that body of Christ was... The Passover. His broken body is the Passover. His broken body is the body that was broken and the, and the blood that was shed so that you and I could have forgiveness of sins. They see that body of Jesus as the defilement so that they cannot partake of the Jewish Passover when that the Passover always pointed to Jesus from the very beginning. Look toward the cross We'll see a nugget later on in the passage that even emphasizes that in, in another degree. But I, I want to focus here on this irony of the Jews who were willing to break their all of their laws having to do with how trials should be held, to break their, their rules of, of, of how someone should be uh, uh, sentenced to death, uh, on, on their rules on how and for what reason someone should be crucified. They're, they're willing to break all of their rules and all of their laws because they placed their religion over people. They cared more about their religious exercise, fulfilling their religious policies, than they did people. When we come to value our policy over people, we've missed the point in Christianity. When our rules and regulation of religion are valued more then the people for whom Jesus died, we've missed the point of Christianity. When we can get caught up in our our do's and don'ts and forget about the purpose for Jesus' death, the grace that was offered to all who sin, we completely miss the reason that God sent his son. God didn't send his son to save a religion. That's what the Jews were hoping for. God sent his son to save souls. Now, let me step on my toes a little bit and your toes a little bit. When we make Christianity, when we make even sharing the gospel, when we make it about church growth, or we make it about c- containing or... or, 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 or uh, continuing our power as christians in the united states or in our culture or or in our uh, in our cities we, when we are more concerned about losing power than we are about lost and dying souls we've missed the point of christianity we have placed religion over christ we've repla- we have placed our policies over people These are are Jewish leaders who knew the Word of God, who had looked forward to the coming of a Messiah, and they completely missed it because they were so caught up in their religious exercises, their rules and regulations, to the extent that they were willing to sacrifice the truth for their own means, for their own comfort. They were willing to lie. They were willing to bring false charges and they didn't see a problem with breaking the Ten Commandments to have Jesus crucified. They didn't see any defilement in that because it fulfilled their means, it accomplished their purposes. They, they, they were willing to sacrifice what they knew to be true and what they knew to be right for their own convenience. It's what religion does. Religion will put symbolism over substance. It will put my convenience, my comfort above truth and justice. You see it throughout this text as as the the Jews, they didn't want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath because somehow this is a special day and and it, it it would taint the Sabbath. And yet they had no problem with breaking all kinds of laws and 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 seeking to destroy someone the second big lesson overarching lesson that i want us to, to see here is that even in his burial jesus's deity is on display the gospel of john is all about helping us understand and reminding us that jesus is god and, and and there's three prophecies in particular that are fulfilled right here in this text. And John, John focuses on these and he, he, uh, he wants us to hear them. Jesus' bones weren't broken. It's a, a fulfilled prophecy from Psalm 3420. Jesus' side was pierced. It's a prophecy fulfilled. that was made by Zechariah in 1210. We also see that, that the blood, when the was, spear was thrust in his side, that blood and water flowed out. Zechariah 12.10 tells us that they would gaze on the one whom they'd pierced. We already mentioned this last week, but another for prophecy that we see fleshed out here is from Isaiah 53, and it's really two prophecies that kind of go hand in hand, that he would die among the wicked, and he would be buried among the rich. He dies between the two thieves whose legs are broken while his aren't, and he's buried in a rich man's tomb. Isaiah 53.9 tells us that. But I think that the, we'll get to a little bit more of that in just a moment, but I think that the most important thing that John wants us to see here is that Jesus is dead. Watch this. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. The soldiers did that to verify that Jesus had died. They came to the first guy, he was still alive, they broke his legs. They came to the, the, the other thief, he was still alive, they broke his legs so he would die more quickly. They came to Jesus and he was already dead, but we have to make sure. So they took that spear and they thrust it in his side and blood and water came out, evidence that Jesus was dead. John doesn't stop there making a big deal out of this because this is one of the few places where John emphasizes his testimony Verse 35, there's this, so there's this huge pause. Okay, they stuck a spear in his side. John says, he who saw this has testified. It's as though John raises his right hand and he swears on the Torah, okay? I am the one who testifies to this. My testimony is true and I know I'm telling the truth. I'm saying this so that you might believe. Why is it so crucial that John stop and make that huge point that Jesus is dead? Because if it were not for the death of Christ on the cross where he shed his blood and his body was broken for us, we would not have forgiveness of sins. We talked about it last week. When Jesus proclaimed, it is finished, you can pause for a moment and say, wait a minute, it's not over yet, you're going to rise again in a couple of days. What's finished? Jesus finished what he came to do. He became the redemptive sacrifice for your sin and my sin. I sat and watched a, a popular, wealthy preacher with a huge following in our, in our culture, watched him on the television answer the question, why is it that you don't preach the hard messages? He said, well, I don't like to preach on the blood and on sin and really on the cross and some of those kind of things because people don't want to hear that. They want to hear the things that make them feel good. I I want to preach on the happy things that make people feel good. Folks, without the cross, there is no resurrection. It, It reminded me of John chapter 11, when when Jesus was going to go back to Lazarus and he had given Lazarus a couple extra days to make sure Lazarus was not only dead, but Lazarus was good and dead. So he tells the disciples, we have to go back. My friend, Lazarus is asleep, meaning that Lazarus was dead. And the disciples argued with him, Oh, Jesus, if he's asleep, he'll wake up, he'll be fine. And Jesus looked his disciples in the eyes and said, no, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that he's dead so that the God might be glorified. What do you mean by that? Well, you cannot Resurrect a live person. There is no resurrection unless there's a death. And, and John wants to drive the point home. Jesus was not asleep. Jesus was not in a coma. Jesus was not resting somehow. Jesus had not, had not drifted off and, and, and was going to slide back into life. Jesus is dead. And he died as a sacrifice for your sin and my sin that we might be forgiven of our sin and have hope of everlasting life. That that spear in the side provided the, the proof that John said everyone at that point needed to see. John, when he writes this, he knows what's coming later, just like you and I know the rest of the story. But he harps on this point, and there's a reason for it. In His death, He gives us life. In His death, He provides forgiveness for our sin. In His resurrection, He gives us life. Let me back up there just a moment. But forgiveness does not come without the shed blood of Christ on the cross. But I want you to understand that even in His death, God was never out of control. And however you understand the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, even in the death of Christ on the cross, even in the time He spent in the grave, God was never out of control. I want you to note from these prophecies that these were not prophecies that Jesus could self-fulfill. A prophet could have written 800 years ago that Jesus or that the Messiah may say a certain thing. And Jesus could conceivably come to earth, or this man could come to earth and say a certain thing and fulfill a prophecy from 800 years ago and say, see, I'm the Messiah. I just fulfilled that because I said that. At this point, there is nothing that Jesus in his flesh had power to do to fulfill the prophecies. He he had no say at this point from a fleshly standpoint of whether his Bones were broken or not. There was no say on whether or not the spear was going to be thrust in his side. Jesus could not self-fulfill those prophecies. He could not choose what tomb he was going to be buried in. The King of kings and Lord of lords, God himself allowed his body broken to be taken into the arms of Joseph and and Nicodemus and carried to the tomb. And yet, you need to see that God was never out of control. Those were predicted 700, 800 years previously that they were going to take place just like that. In his burial, Jesus still displayed his deity. He's still God. And there's one detail that I had never seen before that I don't make a huge point out of, but I think it's a really cool, neat point. If you follow sometimes your cross-references from your Bible, whether you're looking at an electronic Bible or you're looking, sometimes they lead to places and you you say, oh, yeah, I understand. You know, if you look at the cross-reference on... uh, that his bones will not be broken. It'll, it'll take you back to, to that passage in, in uh, Psalm 34, 20. Of course it does. That's the prophecy. But it also does something else. One of the cross-references that I found this week pointed me back to Exodus 12, 46. Now, why in the world is, is, is Exodus 12, 46, the, the, where, where the, the Passover was being described, and the Israelites were being told how they were to partake of the Passover. Why is that being detailed here? Why why is that connected to this passage? Well, let me read it for you. It's an incredible passage. I'm just going to read one verse from it. Speaking of the Passover, it says, Scripture says, "...it is to be eaten in one house, and you may not take any of the meat outside of the house, and you may not break any of its bones." When the Passover was, was, was partaken, when the Passover was instituted in Exodus chapter 12, God said that you don't break the bones of the Passover lamb. All the way back when the Passover was implemented, it was clear that it was pointing toward Jesus, who is our Passover and so there you see the irony again. These Pharisees who were unwilling to, to even let his body hang. These same Pharisees who were unwilling to step into Pilate's courtyard, if you'll remember. Because they, if they went into the courtyard of a Gentile, they would be disallowed or partaking in the Passover. They would be contaminated in some way. Who, who were unwilling to, to leave Jesus on the cross. Certainly unwilling to touch his, the body of a corpse. Those same guys missed the picture that Jesus is the Passover sacrifice. His bones were not broken. His blood was drained from his body. His flesh was offered as our sacrifice that we could be set free from our sin. What an incredible, beautiful picture that we see in the death and the burial of our Savior Jesus. But John spends the next half of this text, a whole other paragraph, talking about two secret disciples. And that's where I want to go from here. Because the the, the last lesson that I want us to take from this is that disciples cannot remain secret. You just can't. You have two guys here that are described... Nicodemus, we know from earlier in the gospel of John, Nicodemus is a Pharisee who he appears two other times in the gospel of John. In John chapter three, he's the man who came to Jesus at night. And he asked Jesus, "Uh, teacher, you know, what is a rabbi in in our translation? We know that you're a teacher who's come from God or no, because no one could perform the signs that you do unless God were with him. Jesus looks at him and he says, Truly, I tell you, unless someone's born again, he can't even see the kingdom of God. And then Nicodemus gets in this exchange with him that ultimately leads us to John 3, 16, where where Nicodemus says, wait a minute, how can anybody who's be born again when he is old. He can't go back in his mother's womb a second time and be born, can he? And then Jesus goes on to describe how uh, you know, you're know you born once of, of the flesh, but you have to be born of the Spirit of God to be brought to life. This is that Nicodemus. So, this same Nicodemus appears one other time in John chapter 7, verse 50, where there's an argument argument about Jesus and who he is. And Nicodemus basically steps up and and doesn't really defend Jesus, but but he, he kind of at least tries, tries to provide a, uh, some commentary to the discussion that was going on among the Pharisaical council to the point that the other Pharisees look at him and say, well, you're not a Galilean too, are you? And so it seems as though Nicodemus is, is at least asking questions. He's seeing some things in Jesus that are bringing him along. And then we have Joseph of Arimathea Joseph of Arimathea, John doesn't give us as much information on as Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. This Joseph of Arimathea appears in all four of the Gospels at the burial of Jesus. He's described in, in the other three, in the Synoptic Gospels, as a wealthy man. One of these Gospels, Matthew tells us that it was, Je- it was Joseph's tomb that Jesus was buried in. They said they took, uh, Joseph took Jesus' body to his tomb that he had cut out of the rocks his new tomb in in Matthew 27, 60. And so you have these two guys who were secret disciples. Now, John does tell us that up to this point, Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. And, And yet he was a ruler. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, a ruling body among the Jews. So you have a Pharisee who's on the Pharisaical Council. You have Joseph of Arimathea who is a ruling on the ruling council of the Jews, on the Sanhedrin, and these two guys outed themselves when they came and took down Jesus' body. Because once they stepped up to do that, everybody was going to know that they were at least believing or followers of Christ to some extent. To the extent that two prominent powerful men, one of them, clearly a wealthy man, Scripture makes it very clear about Joseph of Arimathea, were about to sacrifice their reputations. Certainly, they would not be allowed to participate in the Passover that was about to take place. They would be excluded from the festival. They were going to be pushed out. And John says that Joseph was a disciple, but he'd been secret up to that point. When when I read this, I just started kind of chuckling inside uh, Tuesday when I read it to the staff because I realized, well, he's sure not a secret disciple anymore. Not only had he already become uh, known, once John wrote it down, there's no way he's going to hide, right? And so these two guys, remember what we started out with? Religion places symbolism over substance. Religion chooses the rules over Jesus. These two guys made a decision that Jesus meant more than their religion. Jesus meant more to them than their wealth. Jesus meant more to them than their reputations. That Jesus was worth going all in on. See, ultimately, once Jesus died and rose again, there can be no secret disciples. I hear it. I hear people tell me, well, pastor, I just don't, I don't want to, I don't, I don't believe in the church thing or the organized religion thing. I, I, you know, I believe in God in my heart and I think that's enough. Here's the problem with that. Jesus said it's not enough. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, Everyone who will acknowledge me before others, I'll acknowledge him before my Father who's in heaven. Jesus is our advocate that stands before the throne of God and, and, and says, He's mine, He's mine, He's mine. He trusted me, He trusted me. My blood covers their sin. Jesus is an advocate for us before the Father. And Jesus says, Everyone who acknowledges me before others, I'll acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But here, Matthew 10.33, whoever denies me before others, I'll also deny him before my Father who's in heaven. See, there is no room for secret disciples among Christianity. You're either a follower of Christ, who is willing to boldly declare Christ as your Lord, or you're not a follower at all. There's no middle ground. You're either his or you're not you're the public or you're not, there are no private secret disciples. Joseph had played that game for a while when Jesus was on earth because he was afraid of the Jews. But when it came down to it, when it was time to make a decision, Joseph came out and said, I'm going to take care of Jesus's body. Joseph had enough pull. He had enough power that he could go directly to Pilate. On what a crazy day that must have been. With the crucifixion, all that going on, he could go to Pilate and say, Pilate, I want his body. And Pilate didn't even, Scripture nowhere says that Pilate had any question. One time, Pilate was surprised. I think it's Luke says, Pilate was surprised that Jesus was already dead. So, he sent some soldiers out to make sure. And they came back and said, yep, he's dead. And he said, okay, Joseph, you can have his body. That's the only question that Pilate had about this. It wasn't whether or not uh, he was going to turn the body over to Joseph. He just wanted to make sure Jesus was dead. But Joseph had enough pull. He was enough, uh, he was a powerful enough man that he could go straight to Pilate and ask for the body. I want you to hear that because I want you to hear that these two guys, John highlights for a reason these are two leaders. These are two men who saw it. These are two men who, up to this point, had not publicly confessed Christ. But once they saw his death on the cross, they knew. Nicodemus had to be thinking back to a couple years earlier to the conversation that he had with Jesus in the middle of the night. And I'm sure Nicodemus was thinking back to the stories that he'd heard and probably some of the miracles that he'd witnessed of of what Jesus had done along the way. At some point, Nicodemus made up his mind, it's worth me putting my life in his hands. Interesting to me that Joseph and Nicodemus didn't wait until the resurrection to buy in. Do you see that? It wasn't after Jesus came back to life, displaying his full power, that they put their lives in his hands. It was when he was dead. At some point, the Spirit of God brought them to that point where they were willing to say, we're going to go touch that corpse. We're going to take care of him. We're going to buy him. And now they were no longer secret disciples. They were public. And I know and I imagine as Nicodemus looked back over his life and he, he was reminded of these words of Jesus, if you're going to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. If you're going to see the kingdom of God, your religion is not going to be enough. You've got to have a new birth. What is born of the flesh is flesh. What is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I tell you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is who, with everyone who is born of the spirit. Truly I tell you, we speak what we know and we testify what we've seen, but you don't accept our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. But just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. Nicodemus heard those words in the night a couple years before, he saw the Son of Man lifted up on the cross. Once the Son of Man was lifted up on the cross, Nicodemus bought in. Nicodemus knew that Jesus was the Son of God. He didn't have to wait for the resurrection. The cross was enough. He had to have been reflecting back on those words in John 3, 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way that He gave His one and only Son that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Do you believe that the cross is enough to save your soul? Is the cross enough to convince you that Jesus is the Son of God? It was for Nicodemus. It was for Joseph. They didn't have to wait for the good things. See, a, a systematic theologian would, would talk to you about how there's two different themes that run through Scripture. There's the theology of the cross and there's the theology of the resurrection. We live in a world, and it's, it's not just today. It's been like this ever since Jesus rose. There's some people that only want to talk about the theology of the resurrection. They want to talk about the, the feel-good things, the things that give life and power. But without the cross... Without the Son of Man being lifted up on the cross, there is no forgiveness of sins. There is no bloodshed. There is no eternal life. Without the cross, there is no resurrection. Is the cross of Christ, if, if we never heard the rest of the story, would the cross of Christ be enough to believe? I think that would be a tough question to answer because we, we can't say It was, though, for Nicodemus, (laughs) and it was for for Joseph. You know, I'll tell you, though, if you're still struggling with it, come back next week because there's more to the story. But if you would say today that what Jesus did on the cross is enough for you to put your faith and trust completely in him, I want to challenge you today to take that step to accept that gift of eternal life that he offered you on the cross. Just like he told Nicodemus a couple years before, every, the Son of Man will be lifted up and everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. If that's enough, I plead with you today, cry out to Christ and say, that's enough for me. You died that I could have forgiveness. That's enough for me. If God is calling you to make that public, reach out. If you're online, reach out on our online platform. Reach out through through a phone call or or through a a message to us. You can can go to fbcwithtalking.org slash respond, and and, and there's a little response card there for you to to let us know what God's doing. But if you're ready to, to come to that place where you say, Jesus is enough, the cross is enough, I want to give my life over to him. Please, don't hesitate, but do it today. There's, there's life found in no one else outside of Jesus. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.